All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Betty Kovac. Uh, Betty, uh, within, um, is a recognized expert who shares her knowledge and passion through her books, speaking, teaching, and media interviews in the United States and Europe. She speaks to national and global audiences through webinars, keynote presentations, and media interviews. She received her PhD from the University of California, Irvine in comparative literature and theory of symbolic mythic language. She taught literature, writing, and symbolic mythic language for 25 years. She also served many years as chair and program chair on the board of directors of the Jung Society of Claremont in California and sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family <laughs> Foundation. Betty, I could uh, keep going on, but uh, I'll stop <laughs> oh, there. No. So welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you kind of have gotten into a very interesting line of, of, uh, of work. Tell me, like, what, what originally kind of uh, led you down this path into studying kind of mysticism and spirituality and, and these kind of altered states of consciousness? Yes, well, that's a good question. Um, if I started very early, I would say that as a child, I always had a feeling that something was missing, <laughs> that there was some kind of emptiness that was not when I was a very young child, because then I was playing all day out in the country with my brother. It was a wonderful world. But as I grew up a little bit, I always had that sense of emptiness. So I think that was that experience was something that made me constantly ask questions about, you know, what's what's the meaning of this? Who are we and why are we here? And so I was certainly enjoying my life, but at the same time, that was a question that was always in me. And the only way I knew to find answers in the situation I found myself was to go to college. And of course, there I was taught basically the old scientific worldview that there's nothing but matter. And in fact, this is an emptiness. Uh, we're a fluke of nature and no meaning and no purpose. And when you're dead, you're dead. That seemed like a pretty dreadful worldview. And of course it is. And we now know since quantum physics that it is not true. It is not accurate. But we all were born into that. And many people still believe that. So I would say I got into uh, the study of religions first and mysticism and then shamanism, because I was just simply looking for answers that hopefully would be more meaningful than the scientific worldview. Right. So, so you didn't find those answers, it sounds like, at college. Where did you start finding the, some of the, the answers to the questions that you're looking for? Well, I, uh, when I was, I probably was a, a junior or senior in college, in the South, but I went home to Michigan for the Christmas vacation and I met a young man who had just graduated from Andover Newton. I think that's a part of Yale now, it's a seminary. And he had a party uh, and I, I listened the whole time. There were men and women there who'd also graduated from Andover Newton. So they were very much involved in, in religions. And I heard them talk about Carl Jung and mathematics and physics and, uh, and dreams. And well, I didn't have the ghost of an idea what they were talking about. But uh, after they left, we went into his study 
and I found uh, two books by Jung, and the one most important one was Modern Man in Search of a Soul. And I thought, well, I'm in search of that if it exists. <laughs> and so I began reading him, and then I went from book to book that he had written. And he was a tremendous influence in my life because he had the same questions and many more that I had. And he was looking for answers through actual experience, uh, not through belief systems or, or doctrines, but can, what can we experience and how can we know that is true? Okay, so you started, you started kind of following that, that work um, and finding that you had uh, kind of similar, you guys were asking similar questions. Um, yes, yes. And then, I was interested in Freud, but Freud didn't ask the same questions. And so I left Freud and went to Jung in that okay. kind of sense. Okay. And talk to me about so this kind of uh, uh, understanding things experientially, it sounds like, um, was one of the, the big things, I guess, that, that maybe drew you to, to Jung. What, yes. um, so how, how, I guess, in your life did you start kind of uh, having these sort of uh, experiences, I guess, I assume that there were there were some different experiences that um, that were probably transformative or, or spiritual experiences. Well, you know, and I didn't have anything to go on uh, except the dream, and of course that's a lot. Jung would not be pleased to hear me say that because he talked about dreams, and so I really started paying attention to my dreams and writing them down. And at crucial times in my life, I had dreams that really did uh, direct me in a new direction, I would say. And I, I, sometimes I wouldn't understand them at the time, but the feeling and the experience of them opened me to something that was larger than everyday experience. And as time went on, I continued to write my dreams and there were the big dreams and then there were those that were not so significant, at least as far as I could tell. But at least this was my experience. And it wasn't until later, I finished my PhD at Irvine and I thought, you know, I've really given it to the rational brain. It's had its day and I need something else. So, and I'd also been uh, listening a lot to uh, Terence McKenna, who was the head, did a lot of work in sacred plants and along with his brother. And uh, so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Peru and work with shamans. And I did uh, after I finished my doctorate. And while that wasn't as profound as I thought it might be, in fact, I went twice, uh, it, did, it did open me to uh, a larger dimension than just the dream. Uh, being in nature and learning how to allow nature to, to be in me and what I would feel and, and the events that would occur. So uh, that was, uh, those were very profound experiences, I would say. And then it was about, I think, two years after I came back from Peru uh, that uh, my son, our son, uh, was killed in an automobile accident. He was 20 years old. And then two years later, my husband Ishvan was also killed in an automobile accident. Uh, but after our son's death, my husband Ishvan and I had powerful experiences with uh, Pishti, our son's consciousness. I mean, there was no question about it. It wasn't like, oh, maybe it meant this, maybe that. No, he was present, fully present. And he wanted us to know that he was still alive, that he, consciousness does in fact continue. 
and that he was creating and co-creating with us. And he wanted us to remember why we had chosen to be born at this time and why he died at that time. And he also wanted us to know what the earth was going through, that the earth was going through a very difficult period of becoming conscious of its own darkness and giving birth to a new, much faster consciousness. So that was really the, I would say the most powerful aspect of my experiences is actually experiencing the subtle world with him. I want to talk more about that in a minute, but uh, before we do that, if we could back up and, and go to the kind of the experiences with the shamans in Peru. So what, what sort of stuff did you sort of observe or, or learn from them? Like how, I mean, that had to have been very different from anything that you'd probably seen uh, or experienced in the Western world. Like what, uh, what did you sort of take from those experiences? You said it wasn't necessarily as, as powerful, as impactful as you may have thought kind of going in, but, but what sort of did you uh, learn from, from those shamans you worked with? Well, I, I could see that they were very sincere people who uh, definitely worked with nature. And of course, uh, the shamanic tradition uh, is in many places for tens of thousands of years, a tradition of working with sacred plants. And so I saw in, I had my first experience there in Peru uh, with uh, San Pedro. And so there was a group and we spent the entire day meditating and we were right on the border of Bolivia. And uh, then we had the fire ceremony. And I was by this time thinking, you know, not much is going to happen. <laughs> you know, I'd kind of given up on it. And I think that a lot of it had to do with the uh, overdevelopment of my rational brain, really. I was very Western in that sense. After all, in the West, that's what we emphasize. We, we developed that to the uh, great disfortune of, uh, of the rest of the brain components as well as the heart. But, uh, that night, I, I, I had a friend of mine from Ecuador, we were there together, and I suddenly looked up at the mountain, and there was no one all day long anywhere in that area. And I suddenly saw rushing onto the top of the mountain, many, many people, and animals and children. We were, this place was desolate. <laughs> and uh, so I am sort of grabbing the arm of my friend and asking, do you see that? Do you see that? And she was saying yes and watching it. Only later did we tell each other what we saw. And she told me first so that I could confirm what, you know, if it was the same thing that I had experienced, which it was. But uh, I saw uh, a, a little boy uh, to the right running down the mountain. And then I, I saw them with headdresses as though from another time and staffs. And so I, I, I thought, well, could, these, could this be some kind of drama that these shamans here have organized to help us Westerners think there is something more to the visionary world, which would be a terrible thought, but it was a terrible thought. And then just as I had that thought, I saw them, they were almost like watery beings. I could see them wave as if to say, do you see, we're a different kind of entity. And then I looked to my left and I saw one of them step off the mountain, walk through the air, and then begin to come toward the fire circle. And I looked away. I think I just wasn't ready to really take in what that meant. But this is 
It was through the sacred medicine, really, that I think I broke through to another uh, dimension of experience. And while I didn't know what had happened, I couldn't explain it rationally. I simply knew that I had experienced something that my rational mind couldn't deal with. And so I think that uh, the shamans are today in many places are very good at directing our experience and uh, through ritual, not always sacred medicine and drumming. Uh, that just happened to be uh, the experience that I had to break through to it. And so I think it was opened in a way that so for two years then it was before my son's death that I did start having visionary experiences and, and deeper experiences in nature, I would say. Okay. And then I guess kind of progressing the story along. So it looks like, so you, you wrote your first book, uh, The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing But Life, um, about sort of these altered states of consciousness uh, that it sounds like you, you sort of um, experienced, I guess, maybe partly uh, at this time and then partly um, following the, the death of your, your son and your husband? They were mainly uh, the visions that my husband and I both had after our son's death. And my husband had not been interested in this in the way that I had. He was uh, tolerant and respectful, but it wasn't until two weeks before our son's death that he had a vision and he saw our son's car on the side of the freeway with his body superimposed on it. And then he said to himself, oh, that's right. It's almost time for you to do this. And that shocked him so badly. And then he heard Pishti say, that's right, dad. I'll be out of the house for a little while. Well, we didn't know what that meant, but we realized later that he would be out of the house until our vision started after the memorial and that kind of thing. And my husband was absolutely changed by the powerful visions that he did have with him. Uh, so uh, the book is mainly about those visions. We recorded them as soon as we had them. And I did everything to be as accurate as I could with what happened because I wanted it to be a, a record that someone could read and know that this is possible to enter into the other dimension of reality and to be with those who have passed into that dimension. Right, right. So, and then tell me about your, your uh, the new book that you wrote, um, Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. This was a book, um, so it won the Nautilus Silver Book Award and the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Prize. Um, congratulations on, <laughs> on both you. of those awards. It sounds like this book was pretty impactful to a lot of people. What, Thank you. What was what was uh, what kind of was behind this book, and what what inspired you to write that? Well, you know, for many years I taught mythology on the college level, and in the '60s and '70s, which was a similar time to this, in which we were really becoming aware of our darkness and trying to create new structures, uh, and it was very exciting because. I was learning about these structures and the students too. So we felt it was an adventure together that we were learning. What do these structures tell us about who we are? And I knew from my own experience and from reading Jung that uh, a sacred text or a meaningful text is not that just because we call it that, but it is a text that is structured by the organizing principles of the human psyche. Jung used to call it, uh, uh, describe it as a, a, 
an acorn that within the acorn is everything that the oak tree needs to become a complete oak tree. And just as that acorn intends wholeness, so does the human psyche. So it will constantly structure dreams and fairy tales and myths, stories that will teach us and lead us into a greater dimension of consciousness. So uh, it was a, I love teaching. I love those years of, of exploration and discovery. Uh, and so the book grew out of that, the second book. Uh, so, but then I, I had retired by that time. I retired early so that I could do research. And I went back to the earliest known um, conscious participation of our species uh, in, one might say, altered states. Around 40,000 BCE, all around the world, our species started realizing that it could do certain things that would trigger the mind into an altered state of consciousness in which one could experience a much vaster understanding of oneself and others and the universe. And sometimes it was through repetitive rituals or chanting or drumming. And it's now known that through these types of things that the brain creates a slow a wave, a brain wave that moves through the various brain components and integrates those components with the heart. And I think this is the kind of thing that we should be working on today, discovering the old techniques and creating new ones because the brain is potentially whole and knows how to work within itself to connect and the heart is a brain component so that we can experience altered states. You know, Aldous Huxley, had said, uh, and along with others, that uh, the, the brain is, everybody is universal mind. We are all that vast consciousness. But in order to cook our dinner and uh, get a degree or get a job and earn our living, it has to, there has to be a valve that will limit consciousness so that we can not, you know, walk in front of a car. So we really participate on a daily basis in this limited consciousness that's just streaming through that valve. So the real question is, how do you release that valve? You know, now we need to be where we're not going to be hit by a car <laughs> and we can release that valve. And everybody is already universal mind. And if we release that, we can experience that that we're all one <laughs> and that it's out of love that the whole universe was created. We just learn the kinds of things that allow us to love and relate and create rather than do what we're doing now <laughs> on a pretty big basis. Right. So, yeah, I, I want, if you could expand on that a little bit as far as like the, the importance of these sort of altered states of consciousness um, and I guess, you know, maybe the, the traditions that, that incorporated a lot of these, you know, into just, just their, their lives. And now we've kind of, I guess, lost a lot of that sort of in the Western world. Do you, do you see it as, as something uh, that's super important to kind of figure out ways to, to regain that? It's absolutely important because it's just like having this vast universal mind and we have got all the doors locked except the one that allows us to get around on a daily basis. And we all have that mind. That's who we are. So it's absolutely crucial that we learn 
well, first of all, that we, that we know that and that we then find ways that allow us to open to that. Because the, I explained it, I think, in the first book, Miracle, that when I started having experiences, I felt that I had lived my life in one square inch, and I called it reality. And when we begin to open to these other dimensions, we realize who we are very powerful beings potentially in terms of, of, of loving and creating. And our ancestors wanted us to know that. There were three basic things. They wanted us to know we're immortal, consciousness continues, and that we are divine that everything in the universe is divine, everything, and that we are creative. So I think it's important if we want to live lives that are really full, uh, then it would be important to explore the mind. You know, Jesus had said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. That's true both within our mind and within the other dimensions of reality that we experience within our mind. So I can't think anything is more important. Right. How about, t tell me about, so from my understanding, uh, it was Jung that had uh, posited the, the kind of collective unconsciousness, right? Or unconscious. Yes, he was aware that there was a vast field of consciousness that we were not necessarily tapping into. And then there's a vast field that we create together, the collective consciousness. And uh, so he was very aware that there are many kinds of experiences in our lives that can allow this ancient consciousness to flow through. A quantum physicist might call it the quantum field because we have access to that through probably more so through the archetypal symbolic world of dream and vision. And I'd love to talk more about that. Tell me about so some of these like these archetypes or, or uh, similar dream experiences that I guess have been have been talked about um, that have been shared kind of across across it sounds like across people across cultures. What are what are some of like examples of those uh, uh, sort of archetypes or, or or sort of mm -hmm. shared collective uh, consciousness experiences. Well, you know, there uh, the fairy tale. You know, we we've often thought of it as just a fairy tale. That's probably why it's been able to survive because it was considered of no importance. <laughs> you know, but really, the fairy tale, as well as the core of myth, is filled with archetypes. You know, when you look at a fairy tale and you see the one boy, let's say, who is questioning things and, and he's open to something different. And then there will usually be three brothers or three sisters, if it's a girl, who are just totally mundane. They don't have any interest in that. And they're out to get him, to stop him, to keep him from doing it. And uh, then he'll go uh, very often on a journey. And each uh, step of the journey, he will meet maybe an old woman or an old man, or it goes usually into the forest, which is a wonderful symbol of uh, the unknown. And in that, he will meet animals and people. One is Baba Yaga, the old shamaness of the forest. Sometimes you'll stay with her for a while, and she will instruct you. And then you go on your way, but she will throw out a ball of thread, which will magically roll out in front of you, and you follow it. So it's a wonderful archetypal way of saying, there are those beings within you that will teach you. 
and that will guide you on your way. And then, of course, the person goes until finally there is a, a reconciliation with the opposites. For a young man, it would be a woman and, uh, and vice versa. So it's a coming to, always it's showing, whatever it shows, it's showing various stages in our growth and development and how there's opposition, the opposites, uh, how we are weak, and how very often those opposites, of course, are ourselves. <laughs> you know, the, the three ugly sisters who were after us are usually aspects of ourself that are holding back our growth and development. Awesome. I wanted to ask you about, um, I, as far as kind of more um, like current kind of techniques or technologies for, for altering into these different states of consciousness. You know, I know there's, there's a lot of uh, different things as far as ranging from psychedelics to float tanks to neurofeedback to meditation. Are you, do you, uh, do you take much interest in any of these kind of more, uh, more kind of uh, new age, I don't want to say new age, but, but sort of more modern technologies that I can think, create these altered states? I think they're all very important. And I think each person uh, will find a way that works for him or her but I think they're all important to look at. There's even uh, one now that is with eye movements. I think it's the Botkin who developed that with certain quick eye movements. Sometimes one can go into another state of consciousness. This was um, sort of happened uh, using a particular technique with veterans who were in, uh, uh, who had suffered tremendous trauma in Vietnam. And one man had, uh, had adopted a young Vietnamese child and saw her uh, destroyed by a bomb and it just absolutely destroyed him and when he came back he was in the hospital for years. Botkin used this technique with him and uh, and there was something that just happened that he didn't wasn't part of the technique but it worked and he was in an altered state and he was with that young girl that he had adopted and she assured him and that she was fine and it was just such a healing situation for him that he was able to be dismissed from the hospital. I mean, that was it, that he knew that she, she was more than this child that had been destroyed in front of him and that she was living and conscious and aware of his love for her and hers for him and it was totally healing. So I, I, that was one that just happened out of another technique. So uh, I honor all of them that are that can help us awaken to larger dimensions because uh, let me just go back a minute and say that my study of the shaman mystic scientific tradition was so enlightening to me because it started around 40,000 BCE and in the West from the cave cultures uh, to Neolithic cultures. A friend of mine, Maria Gambutis, was an archaeologist over at UCLA. She discovered the old European culture after seeing thousands and thousands of artifacts, totally different culture from the Western world, totally different. And so anyway, these shaman mystic cultures continue to develop. Egypt was a powerful, powerful shamanic mystic culture. And it was a scientific culture. But Egyptologists couldn't see that. 
because they themselves had had no experience, I guess, in that way. And they also were suffering under the belief that uh, we're evolving and everything that comes later is better than what was before. But Egypt was very powerful. And so was the first temple Judaism. It was a shaman mystic culture. And then there were the, thanks to Peter Kingsley, uh, the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers were also powerful shamans. I read about them and I couldn't see anything, <laughs> you know, about that, but he really unearthed and translated, retranslated uh, the works of these people. And they were extraordinarily powerful healers and shamans, and they were scientists. So what happened to all of that? How did we lose it? Well, it's very clear to answer that. It was the Roman church and uh, the Habsburg empire or the state. And we see the state uh, in our own time is that they will usually make uh, things uh, illegal uh, that might or might not uh, help to heal us, especially when it comes to consciousness. So this is an old tradition, one might say, that uh, it, was, it was horrifying to see what happened to all of these traditions once the Christian church, the Roman church, was in power. They had to completely keep moving, moving out of Europe and finally into Baghdad and into Persia. And some of that came back during the high Middle Ages. But what was so wonderful for me to learn, and I think these, the scholarship really uh, flourished in the last century. And it's kind of synchronistic that so many people discovered different shamanic cultures at, the, in, at about the same time. But that we see that this was our, this was our birthright. And again and again, it was destroyed. Uh, even uh, the teachings of Jesus was, first of all, shamanic. Uh, and we know that now uh, from the Nag Hammadi texts that were forbidden by the church and they were buried and then found in 1945 after the war. And from many other sources, we know that it was a, a shaman mystic tradition. But when the church got hold of it, they didn't create techniques that would help the individual to experience the Christ within, but they taught that one should worship Jesus or the Christ without. In fact, in some, they really taught, and many churches still go with that, that to have a visionary experience is, uh, is the work of the devil, and you shouldn't listen to it. You should only pay attention to the doctrine and what is taught outwards. That is, has been a terribly destructive uh, movement, and, and even the church influenced uh, our materialistic worldview because all of these ancient traditions went underground when the church gained power. But there was a renaissance again and again, four times in Europe, of these underground shamanic traditions until the church realized what was going on and then it stopped it. But one of the traditions in 1600 was, was quite an enlightenment period until 1620 when the church destroyed it. They were scientists as well. So they had to all tuck tail and go home because the church destroyed everything, the papers, their works, everything. And so years later in that same century, about 1660, I think, when the Royal Society for the Study of Scientists developed in England, nobody could touch anything that had to do with consciousness, nothing inward. It had to be only the outer world because once again, the church did not want us to have those inner experiences. Now, there were people within the church who did, but those who controlled what happened didn't. And so we had 
scientists who eventually didn't know that it was restrictions. They just felt that there was nothing but matter because that's all they were studying until quantum physics in the, again in the last century. So we lost it because those in power tried to destroy it. And this is the fifth renaissance of it. This time, I think, is a return of those underground traditions. And it's a real chance for us to realize we have tremendous potential and we need to develop it and, and create a sacredness of all life. And it seems as though a lot of people kind of had, uh, had the connection of, of kind of spirituality and religion sort of being intertwined, kind of uh, the same thing. Whereas now I think we're seeing, you know, a lot of people who say, you know, they're, they're kind of spiritual, but not religious in the <laughs> sense, do. right? Where they're, they're yeah. rejecting maybe conventional, you know, Western religions, but at the same time, they're seeing the, the value in having these sort of spiritual experiences mm -hmm. and, and learning about these, these sort of altered states and, and the consciousness kind of beyond us. Yes, and I think that every, every religion begins in a mystical experience. It's rooted in that experience of a larger dimension, because why else would ex religion exist? But right. when it gets organized, <laughs> you know, it very often will then create a doctrine. Shamanism has no doctrine. It's what you experience. And the, but the organized religion has a doctrine, a ways to behave, what's right and wrong and so on. Uh, and so, but many people did find a spiritual tradition within the church. There's no question about that. And they still do. But there is that problem. Of, of, of not honoring and respecting to the degree that we should the individual experience uh, with the divine, with altered states, uh, with other dimensions of reality. Uh, that uh, in the 60s when sacred medicine sort of was rediscovered in the West uh, and people didn't quite know what to do with it, you know. Uh, it, was, it was really a tradition that had been so integral and so deeply interwoven with a spiritual tradition, not organized religion, but a spiritual beingness, a sacred way of life. But it was all the threads were kind of pulled apart and everybody was trying to find, rediscover, <laughs> you know, themselves and it. Uh, so that, that also created a problem because many people, many young people were, um, well, one, uh, the, I, I think it was a son of one of my students uh, at uh, Berkeley who was on LSD and stepped off the building. I mean, and you know, that does not endear one to sacred medicine when you hear those things. And so it has to be used in a sacred context and with caution and care. Uh, but it's been uh, looked at negatively uh, from the days of the Roman church for very, uh, even from the Deuteronomist, as I tell about in the book. So what my book tries to show is that for tens of thousands of years, our ancestors knew that with certain techniques, they could experience universal mind in which we all are. And 
they develop cultures based on that knowledge and that sacred practice. Uh, even the megalithic age right after the cave cultures, now we know that those megalithic structures are all around the world. And for them, there was no separation between the temple where you worshiped the divine in all life and the observatory because these megalithic structures uh, are in harmony, rhythm with the sun and the moon. They knew about precession of the equinoxes and the, they saw the individual as the mediator between the energies of the earth and the energies of the cosmos. So their cultures were built within that harmony and rhythm of how, what a sacred uh, way of life it is to, to live one's life in harmony with the rhythms of the earth and the cosmos and to mediate those energies. And that's what I try also to show in the book that it looks as though nature had an intention to develop in time and space a consciousness that was capable symbolically uh, and spiritually capable of co-creating with the universe. And when we developed symbolic consciousness, uh, what the Sufis call Mundus Imaginalis, we were capable of co-creating with the universe, but we lost that. And I think what is being reborn in our time is an awareness of that. And not looking at it negatively, looking at it, this is our heritage. This is who we are. And where do you sort of see it kind of, uh, I guess you're kind of already saying, and I guess I see it for myself, like we're kind of already in that, that time where people are rediscovering all of these kind of ancient traditions or uh, different sort of uh, technologies. What, uh, where do you see um, kind of just the world going forward with, with this stuff? Um, I mean, we're at a, a pretty crazy time in, in human history as we're recording this in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, that certainly has to shift just the way we view the world, uh, I would think. So wh where do you kind of see uh, uh, society kind of going with, with the rediscovery of these different kind of ancient, tra uh, ancient traditions? Well, certainly I see that so many people, when I was in high school, nobody <laughs> talked about anything like that. And uh, now young people, well, I mean, I was teaching, began my teaching in the 60s, and uh, young people were so aware and learning and open, and they are today. I have a great deal of hope for the young, uh, but there are many people who are older who are really open uh, to an entirely different way of experiencing the world and living in the world. And so I, what I see is these ancient traditions are now becoming uh, conscious to us. Uh, scholars have discovered them, and now we have quantum physics. And so uh, in uh, the UK, uh, there was, I think in, it must have been about the 1970s that quantum physics got together and said, you know, we can't just have conferences anymore about matter. We've got to include consciousness. And so they began the scientific and medical network and uh, beyond the brain. And when I wrote my first book, uh, Miracle of Death, they, they asked me to go uh, talk about the book. Uh, I can remember when I went down and I saw uh, uh, these older people, men, uh, gray-haired scholars, scientists, and I thought, oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know? And uh, at any rate, they were open to it. And uh, then when this book uh, was 
uh, published, uh, I went there and gave a workshop and also talked at the main conference. And to now there are many women who are part of it as well as uh, visionaries. They were always attempting to bring the science and the inner vision and consciousness together to really understand it. And now they're really going gangbusters, you might say, because they have uh, the scientist and mystics conferences uh, at Oxford and Cambridge. They have the Galileo Commission, which is bringing scientists and visionaries together. They're very open to sacred medicine and shamanic techniques. And they study all of this. I think this is this shows we are in a, a Renaissance period, you know. So I was especially happy when the book won that award, the scientific and medical, because it's that group that brings science and the visionary together. And that's what we have to do because our brain has both. And we have the symbolic brain that's connected to the heart. We have the conscious conceptual brain and one should never replace the other it should always be a continuum of movement between that visionary symbolic dream mystical mind and our ability to conceptualize and understand it and the person who first understood that was an italian philosopher one of the first theorists of symbolic language and he said one should never replace the other. Uh, the symbolic brain actually is older and it feeds the conceptual brain. He gave different names to them like pre-reflective and reflective, but there should always be an integral and dynamic continuum of movement between the two. Of course it should be. And that's what scientific and medical network is doing, but that was not what was done throughout all of European, well, modern European civilization. It, since the enlightenment of philosophers in the 1700s, everything that came before was ruthless, it was uh, useless and just get rid of it. It was inferior, censor it, only the conceptual mind and thus the Western culture. So we're very ill and pathological in that we've only allowed that one part to, to develop instead of having that integral dynamic movement within the mind. And of course that would include the heart. So, um, I think that incredible things are happening today with our becoming aware of it. And, you know, we can just recognize if there's pathology within us, if there's ignorance within us, that's, you know, we have to understand we're part of our culture. And if we can heal ourselves, we can take a step toward healing our own culture. Awesome. Well, Betty, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, we're coming up onto the end of the show. But if the listeners want to learn more about your work, find your books, where would you direct them to? Well, any bookstore, uh, any store that sells books and ebooks, uh, both books can be purchased there. Or uh, a person could go to uh, the Comlux Center, uh, K A M L A K Center.org, and both books are sold there. And if you want to join for our newsletter, we give you information about what we're doing and what's coming up. And also you could get a sample chapter of Merchants of Light, uh, the consciousness that is changing the world. And I do tell about an African group of people who had achieved cosmic consciousness. They say 60,000 BCE, we didn't know about that. So there are many interesting things in, in that book that, that I discovered <laughs> and was happy to know. Awesome. And uh, for those listeners who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. 
And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. Uh, Betty, I wanted to, again, really thank you for coming on the show today and, and sharing all of your wisdom. I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely.